I can't say that I'm much of a fan of tennis. I'm not even exactly sure how they keep scoring that game. But as a child of the 80s, 90s, I knew Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi, for those who don't know, was, at least at one time in the 90s, um, the greatest tennis player in the world. But he, he, he transcended tennis. Agassi was not just a tennis player. He was a cultural icon. So back when people still used to buy cameras, he was the face of the Canon Rebel camera. And I still remember the commercials on TV where he would pull up in his, his Lamborghini and throw back his giant 90s hair, lower his shades, look at you and say, image is everything. Like it was classic. Again, not a fan of tennis, but when Agassi's autobiography came out, a number of years ago, I was curious enough that when we were bumming around Barnes & Noble that I actually picked it up and started reading the first few pages. And on the opening pages, I read this. My name is Andre Agassi. My wife's name is Steffi Graf. We have two children, a son and daughter, five and three. We live in Las Vegas, Nevada, but currently reside in a suite at the Four Seasons Hotel in New York City because I'm playing in the 2006 U.S. Open, my last U.S. Open. In fact, my last tournament ever. I play tennis for a living, even though I hate tennis. Hate it with a dark and secret passion and always have. That is the hook. Andre Agassi, the world's greatest tennis player, hates tennis, which forces you to ask, how? How do you become the world's greatest tennis player, famously good at something, like the very best in your field in something, something that requires so much discipline and practice, like literally he had to reshape his entire life to become that, and at the same time say that he hates it with a dark and secret passion and always has. And Agassi, he doesn't hold back from page one. He's clear. He hated tennis, but his father loved it. And in order to be loved by his father, he had to win in tennis. So, so drink this in. His greatness in tennis was born out of a great need to be loved by his father. His great success is the trophy of his great insecurity. He became the most valuable tennis player in the world because he did not feel valued by his father. Now, I don't know your story, and I don't even know if you know the depths of your own story, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if we were to have one of those rare, vulnerable, deep, personal conversations about who you are, about why you do what you do, even those things, maybe especially those things you hate, but you do them anyway. If we were to have that conversation, we would eventually bump into a significant figure in your life. A parent, a coach, a teacher, a pastor, someone who has fundamentally shaped you. That in some sense, your life, my life, like Agassiz's life, can be read in response to how they did or did not love you how they did or did not value, value you, how you responded to the words they spoke over you. I know it's true for me, and whether you know it or not, it's almost certainly true of you as well.
So in our day, people usually avoid these types of conversations. They ignore these types of issues, these deep, vulnerable conversations until... Until something happens, until something happens where they can't ignore it anymore, until divorce, failure, addiction, cancer, kids go into rebellion, something that makes it so painful, so difficult, so unhealthy that they have to go there and then they end up with a therapist or a psychologist or a psychotherapist or something and all that could be really helpful. In fact, part of how we care for people at GVF is we have a, a list of vetted counselors and professionals to help lead people through these types of conversations. But long before psychology was even a thing, became a profession, the scriptures were speaking into these very issues. According to the scriptures, these issues that we're talking about, this need for approval, this need, desire to please someone outside of us, this is latent in all of us. All of us carry this baggage from our family of origin and significant figures who've spoken into and over our lives. And, and according to the scriptures, we don't stop there. Following Jesus, this life of faith of following Jesus, demands that we do not passively just accept what others have said over us or to us. Rather, we are called to follow Jesus into this deeply vulnerable, deeply personal space and allow him to speak into it and speak over our lives. To say this more directly, following Jesus demands that we grow in emotional maturity. It demands that we deal with our baggage, that we deal with our past. And the gospel is not just a statement about what happens to your soul when you die. It is a declaration that if you let it, will penetrate into the very depths of yourself, into the deepest parts, to use the biblical language, of who we are and why we do what we do, that it will heal the brokenness and transform us and the image of Jeremiah and Ezekiel from the inside out. The book of Genesis is deceivingly complex in this way. On the one hand, it reads so simply. You might be tempted to write it off as just like uh, primitive or childish, but when we humbly allow God to speak to us through it, these simple stories, the, in these we begin to see how they speak to our deepest longings. They speak to these deeply vulnerable, deeply personal issues. They speak to a reality that we long for, even if we can't quite put it into words. So let me, let me lay this out. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God declares his blessing over creation. It is good, it is good, it is very good. In Hebrew, good, good, tov, tov. This is the way things should be in Genesis 1 and 2. To long for God's blessing in our lives. To long for God to speak his love and approval and value over us. This is human. This is what we're created for. It is fundamental to who we are. We are created to be blessed and celebrated by the one who created us. And then we are created to then respond by blessing and celebrating him. That's the way things are supposed to be. But then in Genesis 3, this gets shattered. Curse is the language of the Bible. Curse enters and humanity experiences the horror of shame. We need to hide ourselves. We need to cover ourselves with fig leaves. And then in Genesis chapter 4... Cain, the firstborn, the successful, his name literally means like winner or something like that. He does not get God's approval, but instead Abel, the secondborn, the loser, the nothing, the Abel. He is valued and loved and approved by God. And Cain, winner, he cannot live with this, so he murders his brother Abel. 
And then in Genesis 5 through 11, the whole world reels in rebellion. Humanity longs to be blessed, but refuses to recognize God as our father. So we seek to bless ourselves and we find other gods and other things to try and bless us. And things unravel into chaos. And then in Genesis chapter 12, something happens. God acts. He finds this man named Abram, later Abraham, and says, you, I pick you, I will bless you. And my blessing, it is going to go into you and it is going to transform you from the inside out. And when it does, that blessing is then going to go out to the whole wide world. I'm going to bless you and through you, the whole world will be blessed. This is the power of God's blessing in the book of Genesis. It's not just like wishing someone well or saying something nice over them. It's this life-shaping, world-transforming power. It should be held right alongside with like the second law of thermodynamics or the law of gravity. That at the same time that God created that, that he spoke that into existence, he also spoke his blessing into existence. It shapes reality itself. It is good. It is good. It is very good. And when, when we let our guard down, when we take off our fig leaves, when we stop running away or hiding, when we allow God to see us and bless us, it has a real life-giving, life-changing power to it. Now, how we experience this blessing, in some sense, that is the story of the whole of scriptures. This desperate longing to be blessed, that's Jacob's story. And that's what we're going to look at today. So today, we're going to take a look at a text that's going to force us to wrestle with the ways that we seek to be blessed, the ways we have or have not experienced God's blessing, the ways that we do or do not bless others. It forces us to wrestle with this idea of blessing. It's a text that presses us to answer, like, how do we seek out and ultimately, how do we satisfy this deepest of human longings to be blessed by God? How do we experience it? How do we seek it? How do we satisfy that? Our text is Genesis chapter 27. Last week, we started this series on a guy named Jacob. He is this great, terrible, messy, brilliant, convening father of the faith. And against all reason, God chooses this second-born, manipulative mama's boy to be the father of his people. It confounds reason, and that seems to be the point. God's love is not conditional, and it's not reasonable by human standards. It's not earned. It's not won by being good or worthy. It's by grace alone. So God, for his own purposes, he chooses Jacob. He loves Jacob. And then in chapter 26, we find that Isaac, Jacob's father, is a lot like his dad, Abraham. He's a terrible liar and he's blessed by God. Twice in chapter 26, God will proclaim his blessings over Isaac. That through Abraham's son, Isaac, and through Isaac's son, God's blessing will go through his promised son. This week we pick up the story of Jacob in chapter 27. Chapter 27 unfolds in like these four scenes and we'll take it one at a time. We find in this first scene here, the scene between Isaac and Esau, uh, Esau we find Isaac is now a very old man. He's bedridden and blind and his oldest son, Esau, comes to him and we read in verse 2. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. 
Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. So Isaac is literally blind, but as the story unfolds, uh, it seems equally clear that Isaac is spiritually blind. Like he can't see what God's doing right in front of him. He's groping in the dark with, with all of his other senses. And here we discover um, that Isaac, his particular weakness is that he is like the patron saint of foodies. He seems to have this odd, almost fetish for tasty food. So the, the, the language, both here and in chapter 25, when it introduces us to Isaac, is so bizarre that translators, they struggle to capture it. Here's what I mean. So in chapter 25, um, when the narrator describes Isaac's love for Esau, he says he loves him. Why? Literally, because of the tasty game in his mouth. Now, it, that's, that's not just like a Hebrew phrase. That's like a weird Hebrew phrase. Like, nobody talks like that. That is odd. And if that isn't weird enough, in this text, the word that's translated like, as in prepare the food that I like, uh, prepare me the kind of tasty food that I like here, it literally translates, the word like is literally the word love in Hebrew. In case we miss it, the narrator is going to repeat this three times in this text. Isaac loves his tasty food. He loves his tasty food. He loves his tasty food. Now, in English, this kind of makes sense. You could say the man loves a good meal. But in Hebrew, Hebrew is not like English. Like in Hebrew, people don't love food. They love God. They love their spouse, their kids, a dear friend. But they rarely love a thing. The only other time this word is used to describe how someone feels about food is in the explicitly sexual context of Hosea when God describes the Israelites as loving the raisin cakes, which is the ancient Near Eastern version of Viagra. So Isaac loves his tasty food, and it's just weird. Now, let's say we give Isaac a pass for this like food fetish thing. If we were listening in last week, though, you might reasonably wonder, but didn't Esau already sell his birthright to Jacob. And didn't God proclaim from their births that it would be Jacob and not Esau who would get the blessing? Do Isaac and Esau really think they can outsmart God? And that, that is a good question. But the narrator, rather than directly answer this, takes us immediately to scene two with Rebekah and Jacob. So here we discover that as this whole scene's going on, as, as Isaac's talking to Esau, just outside the tent, Rebecca has been listening in on the conversation and she has a plan to outsmart Isaac and Esau. She says to Jacob, go get two goats. Now this is immediately like a, a flag for us because goats in the book of Genesis, um, we should get suspicious as soon as we hear goats mentioned. Every time goats are mentioned in the book of Genesis, it has something to do with deception. So when Jacob, Joseph's brothers want to deceive their father about what happened to Joseph, they want to sell him off as a slave. They take his coat of many colors, they dip it in goat blood and say, ha, we'll use this to deceive our father and say that he died. When Tamar deceives Judah, she asks him for two goats. Like every time goats show up in the book of Genesis, deception's taking place. So we hear Rebecca say, go get two goats. And we know there's a plot working. Rebecca will cook up an imitation of that tasty game that Isaac so passionately loves. And since the old man can't see anymore, 
She'll dress up Jacob like Esau, covering his skin with goat skin so that he feels hairy like his brother, and putting on Esau's clothes so that he'll smell like Esau. And then thinking that Jacob is Esau, Isaac will bless him. This is the plot to steal the blessing. And Jacob, true to form, seems completely unconcerned about the fact that she is asking him to deceive his father. Doesn't seem to even care about that. His only concern is, what if I get caught? He'll curse me. And this is where Rebecca says in verse 13, she's all in on this. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Like, I'll take any curse if it comes. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. Go get those goats. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. Then she also covered his hands with the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. And then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. So the deceit is almost perfect here. Almost perfect. Jacob's going to smell like Esau. He's going to feel like Esau. He's going to taste like Esau. And, and with that, the trap is set. Jacob heads into Isaac's tent and is going to seek the blessing by pretending to be Esau. But before we go into the next scene, scene three, right here, we, we have to press pause because there's, there's a key word here that doesn't quite fit into the English vernacular. And it's the word blessing. This text revolves around this one word, blessing. The, the great expert in Hebrew literature, uh, Robert Alter, points out that it is not by accident that the word blessing occurs in this story seven times. In Hebrew, that's like saying the consummate or the perfection or the ultimate. Seven times blessing occurs in this. That seven is, is the center of this text. And yet we don't live in a culture where formal blessings are usually given. The closest thing we might see to this would be like a toast at a wedding, like may they live happily ever after. It's more like a wish or a positive thought that you send someone's way. That doesn't seem to be what Isaac and the gang are talking about when they talk about blessing here. So let's boil this down. What exactly is Isaac offering to Esau that Jacob so desperately wants that he thinks he can steal? Like what is the blessing he's talking about here? And the simplest, at the most superficial level, the blessing is just, and I'm using this intentionally, it's just a father declaring who his son really is and what he believes he will become. That's it. It's a father declaring who his son is, who he really is, and who he will become. Now, I'm not sure what your relationship with your father is or was. And maybe it wasn't your father, maybe it was your mother or a teacher or some other person you deeply respected or viewed as an authority. But of this, I'm pretty sure all of us, all of us can recall someone in our lives, a person of authority, who declared over us who they thought we were, who they thought we would become. And those words formed us. All of us can resonate with that. Those words, whoever that person was, they formed our very soul. Whether we rebelled against them or let them pass into our lives and that became part of us. These words have shaped us the way Andrea Agassi's father could so 
totally consume his whole life that he felt he must become the best tennis player in the world, even though he hated tennis. That's the way those words shape us. That's the kind of power we're talking about here when we talk about blessing. There are moments in our lives when someone who we see as greater than us declares something over us. And those words, they form your very personality. They form your identity. They form your soul. They form how you view yourself at the, most, at the deepest levels. They empower and constrain you. They form your core of motivations and drive your behaviors in ways that are hard to overstate. So when your father or a father-like figure declares who you are, and who they believe you will be, those words have immense power. Psychologists know this. Neuroscientists know this. And Isaac and Rebecca know this. But here's the key to this text. So if a father just stating those words over a son has that much power, the key to this text is that Isaac is not just a father. He is a tribal chief. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. He is the son of Abraham through whom God, has, God himself has promised to bless the whole world. And these, these are not just words of a father to a son, as powerful as that might be. Isaac is not just speaking his blessing. He is speaking God's blessing. He's, these are not just his words, the words of Isaac. This is God's word. As we've already discussed, God's blessing in the book of Genesis is part of the very fabric of reality. The God who spoke all things into existence in the same breath as he spoke things into existence, he also said, and it is good. So in our sin and our rebellion and our attempts to find our blessing apart from God, we've torn these two things apart. We've sought physical, separated physical reality from God's, from spiritual reality, physical wholeness from relational wholeness, human Values from God's valuation, from his approval, from his pl pleasure, from his blessing. That God says over everything, it is good, good. These were never meant to be separated. We were meant to find our value in God's blessing. When we seek to find our blessing, our value, our approval, our meaning apart from God, that's called sin, the results as seen in Genesis and in our own lives, when we seek to find our blessing apart from God, the results are horrifying. Shame, fear, hiding, lashing out, envy, division, hatred, narcissism, murder, treating other humans as objects, victimhood, abuse, and on and on and on we could go. Since Genesis 3, we have desperately been seeking to be approved, to be known, to, that we are, to, to, to find value, that we are here, that we are good, that someone greater than us would value us, would bless us. But alas, both the scriptures and modern psychotherapists agree, you cannot bless yourself. You need someone outside yourself. Someone greater than you to bless you. And can I just say, this is, um, this is part of the tragedy of modern secular humanism. It is the belief, and I use this word intentionally, it is the belief that there is no one greater or outside of you who can bless you, so you have to create your own meaning, you have to create your own value, you have to approve yourself, you have to decide who you are, create your own identity, you have to... In biblical language, bless yourself. 
but ask Leo Tolstoy, ask John Paul Sartre, ask Camus, ask Solomon, ask most of the people in our world today, and they will tell you, it doesn't work, and it never has. It leads to hopelessness, to absurdity, to nihilism. But here in Genesis, we find something so outrageous it seems hard to believe that the very God of the universe, the God, God the Father, has promised to bless the whole world through a son of Abraham. It is the hope that God himself might look upon you and me, someone greater than us might look upon us and say, this is my son in whom I love and whom I am well pleased. That God himself might value and approve and take pleasure in me it is humbling and almost ridiculous to think, like, how could God possibly look at me and say that over me? Which brings us to scene three, the part where Jacob pretends to be someone he's not in order to get the blessed God to bless him. So scene three, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob is now pretending to be Esau, remember? Verse 18, we read, He, Jacob, went to his father, went to his father and said, My father... Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. It's lie number one, if you're counting. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And Isaac answered his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Lie number two. This time he invokes God in that lie. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. There's some doubt going on here. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied, lie number three. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought him some wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come, come here, my son, and kiss me. We find that this is the, the third time he's, he's still kind of doubting, but he brings him close. And then when he does, he catches a whiff of him. Watch this. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he was wearing Esau's clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the, son of, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. That's who you are. You are someone who is blessed. And then the blessing just spills out of him. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. The blessing of God just spills out of Isaac onto Jacob thinking he's Esau. And he says over him, you are truly my blessed son. That's who you are. That's your identity. And may God give you an abundance of grain and new wine. May God make you a king and a ruler. That's what your future will be. And no sooner does this happen than we get to scene four where Jacob leaves and Esau shows up. We pick it up. Esau is now showing up with his tasty game, thinking he's going to get the blessing. And we read, his father Isaac asked him, who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. 
Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I just ate it before you came in, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. Those weren't just my words. This blessing didn't just come from me. It came from God, and there's nothing I can do about it. He will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't, it, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you and have made all his relatives his, all his relatives his servants, and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you only have one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. Esau is completely overwhelmed with grief, and Isaac cannot fix it. The Hebrew scholar Walter Brugman, he captures this whole scene in one line. He says it this way. No one wants to live an unblessed life. So in the end, Jacob gets away with it. He gets what he wants. He takes the blessing. And yet, if you read through the rest of the chapter and into the next chapter, you see no one celebrating. No one's like popping champagne or laughing. Instead, we find that the entire family is shattered. Esau is consumed with hatred and he's just waiting for the day when his father will die so that he can kill Jacob. Isaac is lost in grief. Rebecca, she loses everything. She loses her relationship with her husband and with her older son. And then she has to send away her beloved Jacob so that Esau doesn't kill him. And after this act of betrayal, she'll disappear from the story of Genesis. Like literally, it's like she doesn't exist anymore. That's how they treat her. And Jacob, while technically blessed... He still has precisely nothing to show for it. He has to run for his life and he has to live with the fact that his father's blessing was never really intended for him. In many ways, this story is the story of a failed family. From parental favoritism to a father putting his fleshly desires over God's will to secrets and going behind each other's back to bold-faced lies to hatred between siblings. There's a lot we could pick apart here, but... If we zoom out a bit and look at this story in light of Genesis and in light of the story of scriptures and the light of how our stories are caught up in the story of God, we begin to see something much greater than just a failed family here. It's a story that invites us into a conversation about the ways we seek blessing, about the ways we have or have not experienced God's blessing, about the ways we do or do not bless others. And let me just point out a few observations as we try and unpack this. The first thing I want you to see is we, like our father Jacob, are born with a deep desire to be blessed by our father. Now, I mean that both literally and spiritually. Like we all want someone greater than us to value and approve us, to tell us that they delight in us, to speak words of affirmation over us. 
while we experience this in authority figures, like people made in the image of God, whether that's a father or a mother or a coach or a parent or someone, ultimately, this desire in this text points us to the source of all blessings, to our Father who is in heaven. That according to the scriptures and personal experience, there is an innate God-ordained desire in every one of us to know that God looks on me with favor. That God loves me. That He wants to be with me. That He blesses me. Nobody wants to live an unblessed life. So like our father Jacob, we are born with this deep, deep human desire to be blessed by our physical father, but also our spiritual father. And yet, like Jacob, we know that we don't deserve God's blessing. And this is why, like Adam and Eve, we are terrified of being vulnerable for being, uh, being vulnerable, of being seen for who we really are. So we hide, we cover up with fig leaves. This is why, like Jacob, we work so hard to pretend we're someone we're not. If people knew who I really am, if they saw the real me, they would reject me. They would curse me. So I must become a person I am not so that I can be blessed by you. So he, Jacob, in, in, the, in the biggest like caricature ever, he literally tries to pretend to be someone he's not so that he can get the blessing. And we do the same thing all the time. Like a man who hates tennis, becoming the world's best tennis player. All of us are tempted to pretend to be someone we're not. All of us, intentionally or not, play a role in order to steal the blessing that we cannot earn. Now, this pervasive tendency to, to pretend to be someone we're not, to cover up who we really are, this goes by various names in the scriptures. The Apostle Paul in Romans, Romans chapter 6, will refer to the old man or the old self. And sometimes Romans chapter 7 and 8 will refer to the flesh. More recent theologians and Christian authors have referred to this as, um, as the false self or the shadow self. It is the you that you pretend to be, that you feel you must be in order to be safe, loved, accepted, blessed by others. And this, at least in part, is the basis of like personality theory. So like it's the idea that I must become the person you want me to be so that you can't hurt me, or at least, or so that maybe you'll accept me, or so that you'll bless me. Therefore, I must always be my personality type, whatever that is. So I must always stand for what's right, or I must always be helpful, even when I really don't want to be, or I must always be successful, even if it makes me miserable, or I must be fun, even when I feel sad, or I must be one of a kind, whatever your personality type is, this is how it comes out in all of us. So, like our father Jacob, we are born with this deeply human desire to be blessed by our fa father. And yet, like Jacob, we know we don't deserve it. And the good news of this passage, though, is that this passage is ultimately in light of Scripture. Not about Jacob. Not really just about us. It's something that both Jacob and us are caught up in. This passage looks past Jacob and that's part of the point of the whole sweep of Genesis. The good news is that God does bless unworthy people like Jacob and like us. But God's blessing is not based on our performance. It's based on his promise. That through Jacob, the promise continues. It goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and on and on and on for 1,700 years until it comes to a man named Jesus 
the promised son of Abraham. He finally comes into the world. And the Apostle Paul says, the language of the Apostle Paul, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the what? The firstborn of all creation. Now this is not about birth order. This is not like Jesus was born. He is the eternal son of God. But the Apostle Paul is saying that he held the right of firstborn in all of the universe, in God's world. That God the Father looks on Jesus with delight. He delights in him the way a father delights in his firstborn. He says over him, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He's the priest like Melchizedek. He is the king from the line of David. Jesus is the rightful heir of all things, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Yet, for our sake, Jesus set aside his rights. He became like us. He showed us what it was like to live a fully human life with no pretense, no false self, no need to cover up or hide. And then, on the cross, he took our shame. He took the thing that estranged us from our Father. He, who was one with the Father, became separated from the Father and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He who had known only blessing became cursed. So Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And he became a curse that we could receive the blessing of God, that we could be called, the language of John that we could be called sons of God. This is not a gender-specific thing. It's all people are now invited to be treated like firstborn sons of God, regardless of gender or class or race. That all people are now invited through Jesus to be treated like a firstborn son in God's presence. That when we believe, that when we relax and trust Jesus, that what he really did, that did for us in dying and rising again, then by faith, we are identified with Jesus, the firstborn. And when God the Father looks on us, he sees everything. He knows everything. And he loves us more than we can imagine. He declares over us, over every baptized follower of Jesus, the same declaration that he made over his son, Jesus. This is my son, whom I love and whom I am well pleased and he pours out his spirit into our lives, the spirit who cries out within us, Abba, Father. We get the very blessing of the Father. That is the promise for all who believe. And when we receive this blessing, when we allow God's love for us to get poured into our hearts, Romans chapter 5, it comes into us and it becomes a power within us. It gives us a new life. It redefines us. It tells us who we really are and what we will become. It transforms us from the inside out so that we feel compelled then to go out and spread that blessing, give that blessing to others. This is how the gospel works. It is the blessing from God, his unconditional love and unmerited approval that transforms you from the inside out and then calls you on mission to be a blessing to the whole world. Now, of course, this leads to a whole host of questions. But we still have a few more weeks in this series. And it's going to take Jacob 20 more years of struggling from the time he first gets blessed by his father to the time he actually experiences this blessing. So, my point, 
If you're not there yet, be patient with yourself. We're on a journey. We've got to trust God. We've got to relax in this. I just want to close with this. I firmly believe that the power of the gospel is directly related to our ability, our openness, our willingness to stop covering up, stop pretending, stop running away, and stand fully naked in the biblical language before God. Let him see every bit of us and experience him seeing us and blessing us when he knows everything wrong with us. That to be fully known and fully loved is what heals us. It's what changes us. So I want to close with this invitation. I want to invite you to seek this experience, to seek God's blessing in your life. Whether this is the first time you've ever experienced it or maybe the 10,000th time, I, I want to encourage you to to seek God's blessing in your life. And I'm not talking about wealth or health. Don't, don't mishear me here. I am talking about the deep sense of joy and inexpressible gratitude you feel when you know that someone greater than you looks at you, sees you, and delights in you. So this personal experience of God's blessing is essential to following Jesus and essential to being called on his mission. It is the basis of the high priestly prayer that we often recite in our benedictions at GVF. It's in Numbers chapter 6. And I, I want to leave you with these words from Numbers chapter 6. And, and I, want, I, I want you to take this. And I want you to carry this with you this week. And I want you to ask some questions of this text. This is the specific blessing that the, that the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you're to bless the Israelites. This is specifically what the text says here. And as I read this blessing, I want you to imagine God turning his face towards you. I want you to ask him what he sees. I want you to ask him to expose all the ways that you pretend to be something you're not. I want you to ask him how he really feels about you. And I want you to open yourself up, relax, and trust him with whatever answer he gives you. All right, here's the text that I want to leave you with this week. Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, these are the high priests, the priests of Israel, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you. Key word there. And keep you, protect you. The Lord make his face shine on you, that he would look directly at you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom, give you peace, that deep healing. That your life would be as it should, as it was in the garden. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. That when we do this, God's holy name is imprinted on our lives. We are shown to be children of God. And we experience his blessing. That's my prayer for you this week. Go in peace.